years ago, a psychologist named Viktor Frankl stood up to Sigmund Freud, whom we probably all heard of. Freud was, was teaching that what man wanted most in life was pleasure. But Frankl believed that man wasn't seeking pleasure as much as he was seeking a deep sense of meaning. In fact, Frankl went on to say when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, that they will actually distract themselves with pleasure. Frankl wasn't just coming up with these theories in some nice, cozy office somewhere. Frankl was a Holocaust survivor of more than one concentration camp. Some of you may have read his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, But through his personal experience and through the study of others that he suffered with, he concluded this. He said, what a man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. I want you to think of that, that statement, in the context of of a Holocaust. He's saying that, that what these people need most, these people that are in a concentration camp, what they need most is not for that evil and that horror and that suffering to stop, necessarily. But what they need most is to have a deeper meaning in their life, something that will give them the strength to survive the evils that they are in or to survive if it ends. Either way, what that person needs, whether in the midst of suffering or not, that what they're longing for, what they really need, is a, is a deeper sense of meaning. Frankl used this theory not only to survive himself um, through the depression and suffering of the Holocaust, but also to encourage others. He's recorded as, at his, uh, encouraging a fellow sufferer in a concentration, concentration camp not to commit suicide by saying this. He says, if you, if you do that, then you will be robbing yourself of an incredible opportunity. Again, I want you to hear that statement in the midst of a concentration camp. He says, if you commit suicide, you'll be robbing yourself of an incredible opportunity. And and that seems like a a bizarre statement, right? But he says, if you endure and they kill us through starvation or whatever the means may be, then your life will have served a greater purpose because it will have served to show the world how evil they are. He says, if you endure, if you you kill yourself, you're going to miss this opportunity. But if you endure and they kill us, which is likely like what most, what happened to most, and, and very likely what happened to this man that Frankel was talking to. He said, if you endure, then your life will have served a greater purpose because it will show the world how evil they are. After surviving and being released, he went on to work in a Viennese hospital um, where they had people from concentration camp survivors, and, and they had a, a huge problem with suicides. And he employed a, a simple three-part therapy program that was really about giving them purpose in their life, giving them something meaningful to do, uh, meaningful people to encounter, and then really just a a redemptive perspective on their suffering. And and it was really just those three simple things. What is there something that you can do that if you don't show up and do it, it will cost someone else? Just give them a purpose, whether that was painting a picture, you know, cultivating a garden, whatever it may be, writing a book, um, but, but have something to get out of bed and actually do, and then some people to share that with, and then a redemptive perspective on suffering. He employed that simple therapy program in the Viennese hospital, and they, um, after that point, had, had no more suicides. They, it, it, it had such a transformative effect on those in depression. And, and here's the deal. Whether you, uh, we're not here to talk about Frankel's theory and, and all, all of those things, but, but here's what he discovered, was having meaning in your life matters. 
especially whenever it comes to enduring hard things. What we saw last week when we introduced this series on the book of Philippians is that, that knowing God's larger story, what's going on in history, what God is up to in the, in the grand narrative of, of life and, and history and, and those things, like knowing that gives meaning to our own personal stories. Because God's story like, says that Christ loved us, that God loved us so much that he sent Christ to come and to die on the cross for us. So that gives us meaning and value because the Bible says that it's not that we earned it, it's not that we deserved it, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a statement that for some of you, you don't even know how to receive. You don't have categories for anybody telling you that you matter at all, let alone to that degree that they would give their life for you. But that is the message of the gospel. And that gives us meaning in our life. But then furthermore, he invites us to be saved and to experience that meaning. And then he gives us purpose by sending us out and calling us to participate in the redemption of this broken world. So the gospel gives, knowing what God is doing in history, gives us our own life meaning and purpose. And this all sounds good in, in theory, right? That, um, but as most of us know, we need more than just theory whenever life closes in on us with pain and suffering and loss. Pain and suffering reveals what's, what's truly inside of us, doesn't it? it, it when, we, when we encounter suffering in our life, what we really believe about God and ourselves comes out. And we begin, I mean, what's the, the most common questions that happen when people endure and encounter suffering? We start asking questions like, why, right? Why? And why me? Why? What have I done to, to deserve? Fill in the blank. And whatever those wrestles and those questions are, are natural, and, and most of us experience similar thoughts. And in fact, a lot of times what suffering reveals is that many of us are functionally believing more in karma than we are in God's truth of the gospel, right? That we actually believe that if we are good and we do the things that, that God lays out for us, that we somehow put God in our debt, right? And that he owes us a healthy and comfortable life. And then when these things are taken from us through suffering, we begin to raise our fist at God and ask why. So in today's text, we're going to learn from Paul how to, how to flip the script of suffering. From asking questions like that to actually looking at the redemptive purpose that is going on in our suffering in real time. But before we get into that, we need to address some basic um, understandings and, and assumptions that Paul is operating off of. Paul understands that suffering isn't something that happens to him because he has done something wrong or because God is evil or because God is indifferent or unable to stop it. Okay, That is important that we don't, we don't believe those things ourselves. We don't teach those things to our kids. That suffering is not something that happens because we personally have done something wrong or because God is evil and, and wants to punish us somehow, or because he is indifferent toward our suffering, or because he's unable to, like, th none of those things are true, that there's a bigger purpose, there's a bigger story going on and a reason behind our suffering. The suffering that we experience in our life is, is, is a result, really, of the sin and the fallen nature of our world. As Romans 8, Romans 8 says that, that the world is... is subjected to futility, and it groans for the redemption that's going to come through Christ Jesus, that, that our world is not as it should be, that God 
created this thing to be good, and we, because of our sin, it has brought in sickness, disease, death, and suffering. And so that happens on a, on a large scale. Like, that is the world that we live in. And it's, it's not this karma, like, if, if I do good, then I'll, I'll have good. It's, it's, it's really like suffering is an equal opportunity offender. Like, it, we're all going to experience it, some to different levels, different times, different degrees. But suffering itself is not, uh, there's this story in, in John 9, whenever the disciples are walking with Jesus, and they come upon this man who is blind, and the disciples ask a pretty natural question. They say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or, or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, neither. It's not about that. This guy's blind so that the work of God can be revealed, the glory of God can be revealed in his life. There's a greater purpose to this man's suffering. It's not about his sin equals this type of suffering. And so Paul understands that, that, that Suffering doesn't come because we've done something wrong. Like, there are times, certainly, that, that we can bring about our own suffering through bad decisions, right? And that, that God will use those types of things as, as discipline, and we'll call it, and we'll, we'll work in that. But suffering in general, cancer diagnosis, things like that are not a result of, like, us doing something wrong personally. It's a result of our broken and sinful world that we live in. Really, the Bible doesn't pull any punches about this. Jesus, in fact, told us that we should expect this, right? John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you'll have what? You'll have trouble. You'll have trials. You'll have tribulations. Like, you're going to encounter stuff, and it's going to be hard. But he says, take heart, because I have overcome the world. There's a famous story in Matthew 7 that we all know about two men that, that build their houses, and one builds it on, on sand, right, and the other builds it on a rock, and, and so when the storm comes, one stands. But what, what you notice is building your house on the rock, which is like, you know, what we talk about, building your house, building your treasure in heaven, uh, putting your faith in Jesus and not in things of this world. But building the house on the rock doesn't exempt the man from the storm, does it? Building your house on the rock doesn't make you exempt from the storm. In fact, what it says is there's going to be storms. That this world will bring trouble. You build your life on the rock, you'll be able to endure. So Paul is operating off of this understanding that suffering is a, is a result of our sinful fallen world and not this karma-like give and take where we can put God in our debt. And so Paul understands this, and, and it's because of this that he's able to in, interpret and endure his suffering with, with a sense of hope and meaning and a different perspective, really similar to what Frankel was pointing out. And so as we look at this passage here from Paul, um, keep your Bibles open or open them back up if, if you close them. But uh, we want to walk through this passage in Philippians together. And as he's writing this, this book, to this church, as David said, this is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. So Paul was a missionary, and he, he would go around and, and plant churches, which is, uh, he, you know, he's telling people about Jesus. People are becoming Jesus followers. He's, he's planting a church, appointing leaders, and then he would go on to the next place. And, and Paul would try to keep in touch with these people and write back to them. And so this is uh, a group of people that we read about in Acts 16 that um, become believers in this Roman colony of Philippi, and Paul is writing back to them. Most scholars believe around 10 or 11 years later, um, the church has grown. They have their own elders and overseers, and um, they, they've made an impact on their city, and Paul is writing back to them, and Paul himself is in prison once again as he's writing this letter. And I say once again because Paul had been in prison multiple times up to this point. And so as Paul speaks on suffering today, you need to know that he's earned that right. That Paul has credibility whenever it comes to 
suffering. In fact, he, he, at one point in his ministry, has to defend himself and his own credibility in his ministry. And in that, that context in 2 Corinthians, he, he writes and, and he lets us know that he, he has been there, done that. He's, Paul is not like the, the, the 23-year-old you know, life coach that's making YouTube videos about how to, how to do, and you're just like, man, you haven't done anything. Like nobody, you don't have any credibility in this world because you haven't lived any of this. Like Paul has suffered so much so that like here's just, here's just a quick rundown of his pedigree of what he's gone through just since he started being a Jesus follower and being on mission for Jesus and planting churches. He says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, I, I've been far more imprisonments than any of your, the rest of you. I've had countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He was left for dead, like they thought he was dead. You read these stories in Acts, like they, they, they stone him, drag him outside the city, they, they think he's dead. They walk away, and he finally picks himself back up and goes on in the next city. Three times I was shipwrecked. He says, three times this, this guy is on ships trying to go to different places to bring the gospel. Three times he's shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Right? Like 36 hours-ish at sea on a plank holding on for dear life. He, he, and then he says, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, uh, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He doesn't even list the fact that he got bit by a snake. Like, that's probably top on my list, right? If I get bit by a snake, like, I, that's, I'm going to be telling everybody about that. Like, I, man, I don't know about you, but like, I, you know, when I suffer, I want people to know about it, right? As simple as like, if, if, I, if I get up and, and, and deal with the kids in the night, I want to make sure my wife knows about it the next day, right? I'm just going to drop in little hints. I, you know, I might be talking to the, to the baby, oh, you were awake last night or whatever, and just so that she knows, right? I just want her to, like, I'm just so petty and, and so like, self, and Paul's just like, dude, I can't even count how many times I've been in prison. I've been beaten to death, left for dead. I forgot I was bit by a snake. Like he, like, he doesn't even remember all of the things that he suffered. It's so intense in his life. And, and so this is who's speaking this word. This is who's, right, who's pinned a paper here while he's in a jail cell, right? Likely headed toward his death. Like, he knows his time is short. And this is, this is the posture in which he takes, he's writing back to his church, to his people, his friends, his family. They love him. They, they love Paul, and they've heard about his imprisonment, and they're concerned. They sent a brother, Epaphroditus, to take a care package to him. Their hearts are broken. They're, they're, I mean, just, just feel the, the realness in this. Like, we're used to Paul being in prison. Like, we know this story, but put yourself there in real time. Like, this is your pastor, the guy that planted the church, and he's in prison again. And it's not like, you know... The types of prisons that we're used to, where they got like common areas and TVs and outside time, right? Like this dude's chained to a Roman guard in a cold cell, right? Like this, it's so, the people are, are concerned, they're, they're heartbroken for both what Paul is enduring, they're concerned for the mission of the church going forward, what is this going to mean for the advancement of the gospel? They seem to have, have, I mean, Paul is a gunslinger, Paul is is the leader of this advancement of the gospel, really, like I said last week, he, he 
um, and others like him are to thank for the gospel being advanced outside of the area of Jerusalem and, and eventually making its way to us so that you and I have heard about Jesus in our day and age in the land in which we live. It's because of men like this who started this incredible movement of mission work. And so this is Paul writing from prison, and he says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Right there is that perspective that we see from Frankel, that he, ha- he has a redemptive perspective. He could be looking at, woe is me, why am I locked up again, how many more times do I have to do this, I'm about done, whenever I get out of this, I'm going to take my retirement, I've done enough for Jesus. Like, like, he could have all of these perspectives, and we'd be totally justified, right? Like, nobody would argue with Paul if he was like, you know what, guys, when I get out, prepare me a room in Lydia's house, I'm coming back to chill, like, you know, it's somebody else's turn, right? Nobody would fault him for that. But yet, what, what does he say? He says, listen, guys, I want you to know that what, what's actually happened to me has served to advance the gospel. The first thing we need to know about uh, suffering is that God uses it. Once we understand that, that it's not about, like, there's a bigger purpose going on, we, we start to see that God uses our suffering in redemptive ways. And the first way that he uses it is to advance the gospel. Paul says, so his, it's uh, been used to advance the gospel so that it has become throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is actually about. Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is, hey guys, listen, you remember back in Philippi whenever they locked me and Barnabas up and and we were singing in the night and the Philippian jailer got saved and then his whole household got saved and it started the movement of the church. Paul says, hey, stuff like that's still happening. I'm in jail and because I'm in, like, I'm getting a chance to witness to all of these guys. So here's what Imperial Guard is. Uh, retired Roman soldiers, they get like a double pension, and they, they, but they have to go in and serve as like prison guards here. And so most scholars believe that they were actually chained to the prisoners, right? And so every shift, there's a guy coming in, taking a chain, latching it to himself, sitting there with Paul. And Paul's just like, all right, another dude, captive audience. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you why I'm here, right? And he's just putting the gospel before him. And whether these people want to hear it or not, they can't deny that this joker has some kind of bizarre joy that they can't explain. Right? You think about their job. Day in and day out, they see prisoners. And most prisoners are mopey. Woe is me. I didn't do it. I don't deserve to be here. What? Fill in the blank, right? But, but not Paul. Not Paul. He's like, hey, hey, man, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how I got here. Let me tell you why I have these chains on. So much so... It's not, I don't think he means that every one of the Imperial Guard took a turn being latched to Paul. I think what he means is so many of them heard this and were so moved by it, have no explanation, no categories for this guy, right? So that they start talking. They start talking in, at, in the lunchroom and in the, in the, in the locker when they're, they're like, dude, have you, have you heard about this Paul guy? Yeah, he told, he told Joe that it's all about Jesus, you got joy, and they can kill him, and it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know what's going on with that guy, like... Where do you get joy like that? Where do you get? And they start to hear about Jesus. And, and it, it's so powerful that it, it goes throughout the whole imperial guard that there's this buzz about this man named Paul and how he got locked up because of this man named Jesus that, that the, Roman, like the Jews and the Romans conspired together to kill, and he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. He appeared to Paul, changed his life. Paul is telling him his testimony, right? Like Paul is sharing his story. He's like, hey, dude, you, you need to understand I know you probably don't like me as a Christian. I didn't used to like Christians either. Paul's like, I used to kill them. Can I tell you what happened? Jesus showed up, changed my life. I had no explanation for him. I had to surrender. 
I'm, I'm saved, man. Like, I'm a new person, and now I spend my life telling people about Jesus, and, and now I'm here, and they lock me up because I'm telling people about Jesus, and now I'm telling you about Jesus, and that's all I can do. And the next guy, I'm going to tell him about Jesus, too. And these people are like, I don't have any categories for this. I don't know how to explain away what Paul is doing. And so this buzz happens, and, and these guys start to get saved. We see that at the end of the letter, like at one point in the letter, Paul says, hey, the people here in Rome where I'm in prison, they say hi back to you people in, in Philippi. It's, and he said, especially some of the people from Caesar's household. So this is proof that some of these jokers got saved. Like that Paul converted these jailers, that are, the, the imperial guard that are latched and chained to him. Some of them are getting saved, and now they're saying, hey, tell our brothers and sisters back in Philippi, who we've never met, right? Tell them we said hi. Tell them we're in. We get this. The gospel's going forward. We're telling our families. We're telling our friends because of Paul. So Paul says, what's, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel that's going forward. What a, what a portrait that paints of, of the beauty of Jesus. Like, listen, I want you to think about what makes God look more glorious. Is it when we have really comfortable, and that's, I'm not saying we should apologize for our lives, but what makes God look more glorious to the outside world? When we have comfortable, blessed, prosperous lives and we go, oh, thank you, or we, you know, we point to God and give him the credit, whatever it may be, and, and those are good things, but what, compare that to this joker in a cold prison cell. You can't take his joy. You put him in, you put him in, in chains. You put him in stocks, and his body's contorted, and most people are crying in pain and, and, and pleading anything to stop, and this guy is singing hymns to Jesus. Like, Okay, so you guys are like, I don't really plan on getting locked up, Jordan. I don't know how this applies to me. I want you to think about how you suffer and what happens to you. How do you posture yourself? What is your response? Is it, woe is me? Why does this happen to me? Or is it, man, I got Jesus. How could I want more, right? As one of my friends who lost his job, he says, yeah, it's a bummer. But they can't take, they can't take this from me. They can't take my Savior from me. They can't take Jesus from me. So I got joy. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of losing my job, in the midst of a cancer diagnosis, like whatever it is, I, I have joy. And, and when we suffer in that way, John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And, and again, that's just a pithy saying until you boil it down to the, to the moments whenever your life is, is wrenched out of your hands and you hear about a loss that is so deep that you don't know if you're going to be able to go on, and yet you say, but Jesus, Jesus is enough. And this is not to minimize our pain. This is not to say that our suffering is not painful it certainly is right like paul weeps with the best jesus weeps with with those that are suffering this is not to make light of it and just put this weird smile on and, and go on about our day like nothing matters it, you know as we weep deeply we mourn deeply but yet we say we don't mourn like those who mourn have no hope we mourn like those who believe in jesus that jesus conquered the grave that he offers us salvation and we have a hope beyond this world so whatever they take from us whatever this life brings whatever suffering comes, we have hope. We have joy. That is a powerful witness that serves to advance the gospel rapidly, more so than just people that are casually talking about, okay, well, if you don't want to go to hell when you die, you should pray this prayer. No, like there's a powerful punch to the witness that happens whenever people suffer in a way that brings glory to Jesus. So your suffering is not in vain. It has a greater purpose, and it is partly to advance the gospel.
part of the reason the gospel is advanced, not just those who have come in contact with Paul, but it also serves to embolden those that are around him, the Christians that are around him. And so uh, that, that's the next way that God uses our suffering as we move on to verse 14. What we see is that God uses our suffering to encourage others. Verse 14, it, he says, Not only has the whole imperial guard heard about Jesus, but most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's saying, because I'm locked up, because they can't take my joy, others are like, okay, maybe, I could, maybe I'd be all right in prison too. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll keep sharing. Because you need to understand, this is first century Rome. It is not okay to be preaching Jesus is Lord, right? First of all, the Jews don't believe it. They think that's blasphemy. The Roman culture, no, like, you're only supposed to worship Caesar, right? Caesar is Lord. Like, and so for this, this is against the law. This is bringing very real persecution to anybody who would be uh, claiming the name of Jesus. This is not just like, oh, we're going to get made fun of or we won't be a part of the cool kid crowd. Like, no, you could get arrested as Paul is, okay? So these people are having to make decisions about whether they will keep worshiping Jesus, whether they will keep talking about Jesus, whether they'll keep coming to church, because if they do it, every time they do, they're putting themselves at risk for very real persecution. But Paul says, listen, my imprisonment, it's, it's served to embolden the brothers. And they're, they're, they're now like, all right, well, if Paul can do it, we can do it too. And so they keep preaching Jesus. So it encourages those that are around Paul and have heard about this. And listen, again, I understand most of us, at least in this particular season and where we are, we're not facing imprisonment. Praise God, we live in a great country where we're able to gather freedom, gather in freedom here and worship our, our Lord Jesus. Right? That's not true of all of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. But for us here today, here's what I want you to think about. Though you might not be locked up in prison, you are going to suffer. You have suffered or you will suffer. And how you do it can be an encouragement to those that are around us. As I said, cancer diagnosis is not coming because somebody did something wrong or didn't have enough faith. Like it, It's because we live in a broken world. And so if not you right now, then it may be you in the future. And when you get to that place, how you suffer, how you point to Jesus, how you cling to Jesus matters because it can encourage others whenever they get that diagnosis because they know that, oh, so-and-so went through that and they, they kept worshiping. They had a hope that seemed to surpass their circumstances, that seemed to supersede what was going on in their life in a very real suffering that they were experiencing, they seem to be able to go through that. And the same is true of losing loved ones or, or facing death or losing their job. Fill in the blank. Like, whatever it is, when we suffer, how we do it, God uses it to encourage and to embolden others. It's part of the beauty of the body of Christ. As we said, it's going to happen. Like, suffering is going to happen. We're going to have trials. And they're going to vary in intensity and vary in, in length. But we're going to have, Jesus told us so. But our hope is not in those circumstances. Life, it's not, it's, it's not about this prosperity and, what, and me and what, you know, when we're thinking about this, it's all about me and uh, God, why do you allow this to happen? I don't deserve this, blah, blah, blah. Then we have a totally different perspective that leads to depression, that leads to, I, you know, walking away from the faith. But when we see it as a bigger picture that, that our, our hope doesn't rest in anything in this world, but rather in Jesus. And so whatever happens in this life, Paul says, man, it can't even compare. It can't even compare to what's coming next. This light and, Paul says, this light and momentary trouble. Think back to the list of everything that Paul's endured, right? Paul says, this light and momentary trouble, it cannot even compare to the glory that's coming for me, Jesus. We're going to see next week that he's able to face death and say, all right, cool, 
That'll be awesome. I get to meet Jesus, right? We're going to talk about how we can say dying is gain. We're going to talk about that next week. So this is, this is Paul's posture here of, of able to say, like, listen, because I know what God is doing in the world, I'm able to look at my suffering and say, man, God's using it. The gospel's going forward, and my brothers and sisters are being encouraged and emboldened so that when, the, when, they come, when, when suffering comes to them, they'll have an example. They'll have somebody to look ahead and, and see how I've suffered. And so Paul's rejoicing in this. Again, it's not to say that our suffering doesn't matter, to make light of it, or, but, but to lean hard on the Lord through it. God uses that to encourage other people. And then lastly, we see in verse 15 through 18 that, it, that God uses our suffering to sanctify us. Sanctify is just a fancy word for grow us, make us more like Jesus. Right? So Jesus saves us, and, and we are forgiven of our sins. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Right? But the Bible talks about us being saved. Right? And so there's this active process. So we're justified. Never again will, will our, once we've trusted in Jesus, repented of our sin, never again will let we held against us, right? Like we are justified before the Lord. But it says we are being saved from the power. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. So increasingly as we live this life, we are being saved and growing in victory over sin as we get more and more and more like Jesus. We, we get less and less held down, burdened by, affected by the sins in our life. And then it says that one day we'll be saved completely from the presence of sin. Praise God. We're being saved. Like there's, there's so much more to it than just praying this prayer and waiting until we die and getting, punching our ticket to heaven, right? There's this active process in which Jesus is inviting us. And, and, he, and listen, he uses suffering in this so intensely. The Bible, like David talked about there being a refiner's fire. Like that's a pretty song to sing, but a rough thing to live, right? Because what he's saying is sometimes the Lord puts us in the fire so that he can burn off the impurities and the things that are not healthy in our life so that we come out the other side more pure, more like Jesus, with more joy, more hope. God uses our suffering to sanctify us. What we see in Paul is he's very practically able to deal with some junk in his life that would drive most of us crazy. Um, Paul's able to deal with it and go, you know what? I get it. It's, It's all right. And here's what he's talking about. So, Verse 15, he says, some indeed, so Paul's in prison, he says, some indeed, um, these guys are being more bold, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Well, what's going on there? Basically, you think about what's happening in this, you know, very real time. Paul is, is becoming very well known for being a gospel maniac, right? Like he's planting churches all over. People know about Paul. So you take Paul out of that equation, you put him in jail, and it creates this leadership vacuum, right? We, we, we see this throughout history. Uh, I heard one pastor kind of compare it to Alexander the Great. Whenever he died, he's got this incredible empire, and within just a matter of like three to five years, the whole thing is crumbled. Why? Because his exit creates this vacuum of people jockeying for the top position, right? Jockeying for power, influence, and leadership. And so Paul's in prison, so in comes all these guys trying to take Paul's place. And Paul says some of them are doing it out of goodwill, but others are doing it out of envy and rivalry. Now that seems weird that they're preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. But Paul says, he says the latter in verse 16, do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So they're like, man, Paul's in prison. Somebody's got to keep talking about Jesus. I'll do it. So Paul says, that's a great thing. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what we see here is we talked about prosperity gospel preachers. We talked about Paul's teachers a few weeks ago. 
those are not a new thing to our day and age. Like Paul says, same type of thing. People with wrong motives, people with, with false, you know, intentions are preaching the gospel here in this day. Paul says, listen, they're doing it, and some of them are doing it just to get under Paul's skin. They're doing it just to, just to kind of rub some salt in Paul's wounds and saying, see, man, it ain't about you, or see, I got, you know, fill in the blank about what, what they think they're accomplishing in that, but they're trying to, to kind of kick Paul when he's down and saying, listen, I'm going to take advantage of the popularity that, that you have promoted, and I'm going to start preaching this other safer gospel. I'm going to build this church. I'm going to benefit from it. I'm going to profit from it. Fill in the blank. And, and, and that would drive Paul crazy. We see Paul come with an crazy an intensity toward false teachers and preachers, where he calls out and, and, and really grabs churches by the collar and says, how dare you believe in any other gospel? Right? So Paul comes at these guys with great intensity. He, he can't stand false teachers, but what he's saying in this moment is, listen, it's caused all kinds of people to be talking about Jesus. And some of them are doing it because they really love the Lord and they love me and they're carrying on ministry. Others are doing it because they're trying to rub salt in my wound. And he says, you know what? So he says, what then? Verse 18. Here's the deal. Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul says, yeah. You know, people are probably telling him, right? You can imagine him coming to the prison cell and telling him, hey, man, so-and-so is out there. Can you believe that guy? Like, just last week, he was coming down on you and calling you. You know, he wrote a blog. He was attacking you on Twitter, and now that you're in prison, he's out there, you know, trying to capitalize on your follower, whatever, you know? Like, and Paul's like, you know what? I get it, and I am angry about that, but what I'm going to rejoice in is that Christ is being proclaimed. They may have false motives, but the power doesn't lie in the preacher or the person teaching it. The power lies in the gospel. And if the gospel is being proclaimed, Paul says, amen, amen. Because people will be saved even if those jokers are completely false in their intentions. So what, what he's saying, like, we, we see it all the time, and this is a good reminder that God can draw a straight line with crooked sticks, right? Like, that it's, it's not, this is not a book of heroes. I'm not a hero. Like, I'm a sinner in need of Jesus just like you all, but God uses People, like, I think my intentions are pure. I don't mean to say that I'm, you know, in that camp. But what I'm saying, like, the power lies in the gospel, not in the preacher, not in the, the, the guy speaking it. And Paul says, yeah, I know, they have terrible intentions, but I'm going to rejoice because the gospel of Jesus is going forward. How's he able to do that? How's he able to have that kind of perspective in the midst of that kind of suffering? Right? Like, most of us will fly off the handle and get defensive in a moment. Take to Twitter, take to Facebook, like start defending our positions or defending our candidate, defending our person, our pastor, our author, our whatever, our sports figure. Like we're, we're quick to be defensive, right? Paul, how is Paul able to get this posture and have that kind of reaction in the midst of that kind of suffering and that kind of junk in his life? The answer is suffering. It, that God has used suffering to mature and to, to mold Paul into the man that he is today where he's able to say, you know what? Jesus is being preached. I get it. Paul gives us a glimpse into his suffering pretty regularly, and, and he says this. He, he tells the church this, and listen, this stands in contrast to somebody who would say, well, if you don't have enough faith, then, or, you know, then you're not really, you don't have enough faith if you can't be healed or whatever, if you've asked God. Like, Paul says this, I suffered greatly, and I asked the Lord to take it from me, but here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, so Paul's seen some amazing stuff, done some amazing things. At one point it says, like, just 
some of Paul's, like if you take a scarf off that dude or a cloak that he'd been wearing, you could take that to some sick people, touch them with it, and they'd be healed. Like there's some incredible work that Paul has done. He's raised people from the dead. He's done incredible things, planted a lot of churches. So you can imagine that, that you know, if you've got any kind of approval or any kind of thing going on in your life, like that's intoxicating, right? For people to praise your name, for people to give you accolades, like that's intoxicating. We like to hear how good we are. We like to hear how much people like us. And so Paul's got a lot of followers, a lot of, and, but and so here's what he says. He, he starts to understand what God is doing. And, and to the point that he says this physical illness that he suffered from, he starts to see, oh, God's using that to keep me humble. God's using that to keep me humble. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul talks about that in other places. He says, I'm sharing in Christ's suffering. And as I share in Christ, like, as I suffer, I get to experience what my Savior suffered. And, and I get to experience him more and grow in fellowship with him. And this is what he's talking about. He says, in Paul's weakness, he's able to receive more of Jesus' grace than he was in, in strength. It says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do not forsake the word of God when you're going through suffering. It is chock full of passages just like that. And you're going to need to be reminded of them. God uses suffering to mature us, sanctify us, to make us into a person that's more mature than we were yesterday, right? More mature than we were years ago. You should be growing as a Christian. One of the ways that God's going to facilitate that is by allowing suffering into your life. Because he's mad at you? No. Because suffering's part of this world that's broken, and he's going to use it to advance the gospel, encourage others, to sanctify you. So our response, what do we do with this? In short, you should prepare for suffering. You should be prepared for suffering. You shouldn't be surprised when it comes. Jesus told us to expect it, right? To be ready. Not build your house on the rock so that you won't experience any storms. Not build your house out here outside of the, the storm area. No, no, build your house on the rock so that when storms come, you don't fall. You don't, your house doesn't crumble around you. So we should prepare for it. The way we do that is by treasuring God above all else, that he's our treasure. We don't store our, up for ourselves treasures here on earth, and, uh, you know, but instead treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. No matter what happens, we have our treasure there. God is the point of our existence. He is the one that we're trying to make much of. He is the point of this this big story, and therefore he's the point of my story. And when we have that, we'll, able, we'll be able to have a redemptive perspective on our suffering. Secondly, re remember that the promise of life comes through loving God and loving others. It's not about your best life now and fulfilling all that you want, right, and, and focusing on me. It's about loving God and loving others. That's a life of sacrifice. Jesus says, come take up, take up your cross and follow me. And as you give your life away, you'll actually begin to find it we remember that, we'll be able to suffer with a different level of hope. And then lastly, you got to be in community. You've got to be in community. Like, you won't be able to have this redemptive perspective on suffering if you don't have God's people around you. 
Think of the encouragement that Paul is receiving here. This church is sending him a gift, a financial gift and, and resources, and then this brother Epaphroditus almost dies trying to get to Paul. And Paul is so encouraged and so moved, and, and these, like he has these people coming to visit him, coming to love on him, like he's suffering in community. We have to have people around us. We can't do this solo and just off on our own. We have to be in community so that when we suffer, we can have friends to remind us of these truths. Because it's not going to be easy to see them in the moment. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there. It's not what you need is just to suck it up or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, he never calls us to just make light of our struggles. He says, bring them to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. Does that mean he's going to make all your troubles go away? No. I'll give you rest. Deep, abiding peace. That's the context of that passage in John 16. He's saying, I'll give you peace that surpasses all understanding. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You won't find peace in this world, but in me, you can have peace in the midst of this broken world. That's the invitation of Jesus. Got to be in community so we can remind each other of that. Listen, as we close, I want you to dream of you a minute. I want you to think about how Paul says, my suffering is used to advance the gospel. I want you to think about what, what if we became a people what if we became a people that, that looked at our own suffering through this gospel lens? What impact would this have on, on our own lives? Our own level of joy in the midst of things aren't going our way? What impact would it have on our witness in our community if we were a people who didn't find our joy in the stuff of this world? But instead, in the midst of losing jobs and being persecuted and fill in the blank, we're people who still have joy, right? Like that's different than us just living like everybody else but saying, oh, yeah, I go to so-and-so church. People will start to notice that. The people that, we're, that we live with, our, our family, our, uh, the people that we work with, the people that we live nearby, they'll start to hear about how we've suffered well and how loss of a family member, the, the diagnosis did not devastate us because our joy is in Jesus. What impact does that have on them? And then lastly, what if you today, whatever, whatever, you're, whatever you're bearing on your soul, what if, you, what if you brought your burdens to the Lord? What if you brought your broken heart? What if you laid them at the altar today and let, let your church family come alongside you and bear those burdens with you to pray with you? What if you threw yourself upon Jesus and his grace this morning, what impact would that have? Wouldn't you rather have him carry them for you? That's why he went to the cross, right? Our iniquities, our sin, our shame, it's all laid upon him. Don't carry him yourself whenever he's offered to take them from you. You can come and receive that hope, receive that salvation through that Jesus today. Let's pray. Jesus, none of this is possible without you. So we ask that you would come, be big in this moment. Bring healing, bring hope. Bring glory to yourself through our own suffering. Do a work during this time of response, Lord. Those that need to come and receive you as Jesus for the first time, would you... 
Give them the faith to step out and do that. For those that need to confess that their heart is breaking and nobody knows it and they're bearing that burden alone, would you give them the the faith, the invitation to know that they can come today? For the rest of us, Lord, would our faith be emboldened? Would we be prepared to suffer well, to see the bigger story, to see the hope that we have in Jesus beyond this world? And may you use us to make much of yourself through whatever we're going through. These things we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.